This week on Q&A, two members of the Secret Service team who guarded President John F. Kennedy. Gerald Blaine has written a book about it called The Kennedy Detail. He's joined by former agent Clint Hill. People often think C-SPAN is funded by the federal government. In fact, we're a nonprofit organization that receives no government funding. As news consumption changes, you can help ensure the future of C-SPAN's unfiltered coverage of national government and politics. We hope you will consider making a tax-deductible contribution that will support our daily editorial operations. To learn more, visit c-span.org donate. Gerald Blaine, author of The Kennedy Detail. Why did you decide to do a book all these many years later on that day? Uh, we wanted to set the record straight. Uh, after the assassination, uh, it made such a powerful impact on us that we didn't even talk about the assassination together uh, uh, with each other. And uh, it was only at a reunion in Dallas this last year that we had a chance to sit down and communicate about it from the emotional aspect. We all had our responsibilities of writing reports and so forth, but emotionally we never, never got it out. Clint Hill, when did you first talk about this? Well, I had an interview with 60 Minutes in 1975, uh, but I didn't really go into depth at that time. And then I did another interview with uh, 60 Minutes in 1991 or so, and an interview with National Geographic, but I've never, ever gone into depth until I agreed to uh, help Jerry write this book. Where did you start? Oh, I started when I uh, retired, which was a little over five and a half years ago. Uh, I uh, went into the private sector sector in 1964 and uh, kept very busy during that period of time. I went to see the movie JFK, and uh, it was so absurd that I decided I was not going to read any more conspiracy tales. But uh, I worked in the private sector, retired, and uh, all of a sudden I thought, you know, there's one issue that still hangs over me, and it was the assassination of President Kennedy. And so I started looking on the Internet, and uh, I was reading stories about agents being part of a conspiracy, agents uh, shooting the president, uh, uh one of an agent in the follow-up car shooting the president, albeit accidentally. And uh, then I read something about Tampa, Florida. Well, I had conducted the advance in Tampa, Florida, and uh, I uh, read a book. Uh, uh, it was so absurd that I pulled out my reports because all of the agents maintained their investigative reports, their advance reports, daily reports, expense accounts, and ultimately the shift accounts. So I had a very good record of what happened in Tampa, Florida, and it was so off base. This was a book, Ultimate Sacrifice, and they talked about a four-man hit team, the fact that President Kennedy uh, knew about the four-man hit team. Uh, they accused the agents of covering it up, even though we knew it, we didn't say anything about it. And they did this because they thought all of the reports had been destroyed. Well, after I read that, I decided, okay, it's time to contact the agents. Let's find out really what happened all the way through and communicate. We're uh, the last of a dying breed here, and uh, there are not many, many of us left. And... Uh, so we felt we owed it to the public to give a balance to history. Tampa was on November the 18th, four days before the 22nd, is that yes. right? Mm -hmm. And what was, the, what was the controversy in Tampa? Well, the controversy appears to be uh, whether President Kennedy ordered the agents off the car. You have to put this in perspective, what was happening historically at that time. President Kennedy was really elected to pass a civil rights bill. The first three years of his administration was tied up in the Cold War, in the Bay of Pigs, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, 
access to Berlin, and uh, it, uh, he had no time at all until these issues were resolved in, uh, oh, I would say uh, September and October. We covered about nine states. He had uh, confidence in that his programs were being accepted. So I, as an agent, was concerned because we had 11 experienced agents leave in the month prior to the assassination. So that meant uh, with a trip like this, we had to send a number of agents out on an advance. And uh, the uh, day shift, which really was the same shift that worked Dallas, only had two experienced agents, and one of the agents, Jack Reedy, had a death in the family. So when we showed up, we had 28 miles of motorcade. So I talked to Floyd Boring. I said, Floyd, I, we're going to wear these guys out, so let's go ahead and put them on the back end of the car and uh, approach it that way. Floyd said, I don't know whether the boss is going to buy that or not, but uh, let's go with it. So uh, we started in, and uh, the agents were on the back of the car from the very first stop at uh, Lopez Field. Uh, they mounted the car, and it wasn't long before we hit a gap where there were no crowds. And uh, President Kennedy must have noticed the agents standing there. He was, uh, next time he got up with a, a crowd nearby, he stood up held on to the handrail, and he said, Floyd, tell the Ivy League charlatans to get off the car. So I was riding in the uh, in the lead car, and all of a sudden I hear Floyd say, uh, uh, President wants the Ivy League uh, charlatans off the car. I said, that couldn't have come from Floyd. That had to come from the president. And uh, so uh, Emory heard, and... Uh, he looked up and he said, we're going too fast. And uh, Floyd said, well, have him duck down. So the agents uh, ducked down, and the uh, minute it cleared up, uh, the agents fell back to the follow-up car. After that, President Kennedy said, look, uh, his political style was to go out and shake hands with the people, uh, to greet them, and so forth. And... Uh, uh, Floyd had evidently had a discussion with him on the way down there, and he said, uh, Floyd, if I didn't get out and shake hands with the people, I couldn't get elected dog catcher. And so uh, he said, for this trip and the trip down in Texas, I don't want the agents riding on the back of the car. Clint Hill, what relevance does this have to your life and to what happened in Dallas? Well, <clears throat> I was informed prior to the Dallas trip by Floyd Boring that that was the, what the president wanted. He didn't want people on the back of the car. Now, when we got to Dallas, we were going down Main Street. And in, in that situation, there were dense crowds, about 20 people deep on each side of the street. The driver of the car, Bill Greer, was running the presidential vehicle closer to the left-hand side of the street to keep the president, who was in the right rear, away from the crowd on the right. Well, that put Mrs. Kennedy right next to the crowd, and the motorcycles would have to drop back. So I occasionally, down Main Street, would go from the follow-up car, get up on the back of the car. What, by the way, what was your job during this trip? I was responsible for Mrs. Kennedy's protection. And I did that four or five times until we got to the end of Main Street, when we turned right onto Houston. The crowds dissipated. There were very few people. And so I got back in the follow-up car. When we turned left on Elm, right in, in front of the school book depository, there were very few people on the left, few people on the right. There was no reason to be on the back of the car, and we knew we were about to hit the Stebbins Freeway and Expressway, and we were going to go at freeway speeds, which meant there wouldn't be agents on the back of the car anyway. So there were no agents on the back of the car at the time the incident occurred, but it was partly because we were about to hit a freeway and partly because he didn't want them there. Joe Blaine, what was your job? My job uh, at that time, after I came back from uh, from Tampa, I was supposed to go to Dallas to help uh, win Lawson complete the advance. 
but uh, we had an agent who had some connections in uh, in Dallas, so I joined the midnight shift, and uh, we uh, worked uh, from midnight to eight, and uh, in the White House, and then we caught a uh, twin-engine Navy plane and uh, flew to Fort Worth, and stood watch that night. The next day, when the assassination occurred. We just arrived in Austin, uh, Texas. So. And were you just on the detail, uh, on the presidential detail? Or were you running? I mean, what was your title? I was a special agent on the detail. I'd been on the detail for five years. Like Clint, I'd started with uh, President Eisenhower. How long did you work for the Secret Service? Uh, it was just a little over five years when totally. I left, yes. Clint Hill, how long did you work for the Secret Seventeen Service? Seventeen and a half years. And why did you leave? I was forced to leave because of retirement, disability retirement. Do I remember correctly that you were 43 at the time? When That's you correct. I was 43 when they retired me. What have you done since then? Mostly just been retired. I tried a few businesses which didn't succeed very well, so I've just pretty much been retired. And what did you do when you left the service? Uh, I went to, went to work for IBM, and I uh, took a leave of absence and helped train the Shah of Iran's bodyguards. They had uh, some concerns at that time. I went back to work for IBM, and uh, during that period of time, I realized the potential for law enforcement. We lacked information. Uh, we were pre-technology. We operated by hand signals. There were very few of us. We were like uh, brothers. We wore sunglasses, mainly to shield our eyes, because in our pockets we carried a stack of three by five cards with uh, photographs and a description of what the threat was. So if we notified somebody or noticed somebody, our job wasn't to go after the somebody. Our job was to shield the president. So we would get the uh, vehicle out of the area if we could. But uh, uh, with IBM, I helped design the uh, National Crime Information Center, uh, worked with people that were working on a, a system at the agency uh, called Walnut, I worked on mobile terminals, fingerprint scanners, all of the things that uh, I felt were missing in the Secret Service. Clint Hill, what, when did you decide to participate in this book and why? Jerry Blaine, who I'd known since 1959, called me and told me he was going to write a book. And I was not enthusiastic at all because I'd been offered the opportunity to contribute to books or write one myself, and I had said no. He assured me that it would be factual, no salacious material, no gossip, and that I could check it for facts, and then I agreed that I would participate. What did you put, what, what's your contribution to this book that you had never said before? That I'd never said before? In other words, you said you'd been interviewed before and talked about it. What's new in here from you? Some of the information about what actually happened that day, what happened at Parkland Hospital, what happened when we got back to Washington with Mrs. Kennedy, uh, her attitude, her activities, that's all new in the book. And from your standpoint, what's new in this book? Uh, it was uh, a matter of, there were a lot of gaps that day, and... Uh, Clint helped me and all of the other agents. Uh, we went back to shift reports. Uh, I went through the archives out in, uh, uh, at the University of Maryland uh, to look at the Kennedy file, went through all the investigative files, that uh, the aspects that I had not seen before. And uh, we just wanted to make sure that we had fact on everything that we, uh, we put in there. Uh, we put in a, put it in from an agent's perspective. Uh, we had a tough job. We worked, averaged about 60 hours a month over time. And if you took our pay and uh, so forth, we ended up making about $1.80 an hour. And uh, we were all dedicated. Uh, most of them were veterans of the Korean War. We had um, our shift leader, my shift leader, Art Godfrey had won two silver stars in Anzio, and I didn't find out until he died. So a very closed-mouthed group as far as themselves, 
but they were all like brothers. We uh, we had a fantastic group of men. How many of the agents from that day, November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, are deceased? Well, let's see. Over uh, from that day, I would say there are about seventeen that are still alive of the people that worked on the Kennedy detail from nineteen sixty one. Uh, on. How many total would have been on the detail? Well, at any one time, there were uh, uh, 34 agents on the president's detail and six agents on uh, Mrs. Kennedy and the children's detail. Now, we've got some video from YouTube. Uh, one of the things you say in your book that made you want to write this book was all the conspiracy theories, and you talked about the movie from Oliver Stone. This is a man named Vince Palomara. Uh, Do you know him? I'm familiar with him. I don't know him. He says that, I guess, it, it, you know, we'll talk about this, that he sent you a 22-page letter. I recall receiving a letter, which I sent back to him. I didn't bother with it. You didn't talk to him ever? He called me, and I said hello, but that was about it. And over the years, have you both been called about this assassination on many occasions? I've been called numerous times. What's been your attitude? How, how have you approached uh, people? That For the most part, I've just said I have no comment. I just have nothing to say. And why is that? <clears throat> well, I, most of it's from people who are writing conspiracy theory books that don't make any sense to me. So if they're not going to deal in fact, then I don't want anything to do with it. And how about you? What have you been Same ever... thing. I, uh, I have never talked to an author of a book. And uh, that uh, I just felt... We have it on our commission books, worthy of trust and confidence. And uh, I felt those were issues that you should never talk to anybody on the outside about. And it was, uh, I had to weigh and evaluate when I wrote this book because I felt I wasn't talking about the Secret Service. Uh, I wasn't talking about the Kennedy family, but I was talking with, about the agents that I worked with and the incidents that occurred, and uh, those were my friends, so that's what I decided to write. Did you have to get permission to do this from the Secret Service? No. no. So this wasn't cleared by the Secret Service? No. Okay. No, but we had uh, lunch today with the uh, director of the Secret Service who uh, thanked us very much for uh, our contribution. So. Here is this video. It's not very long. And this man's name is Vince Palomara. He's a citizen who has taken it on his own to become an expert. He's from Pennsylvania, and I don't know him. I've never talked to him. I've just seen it on the web. And he has a, I believe he's a graduate of Duquesne University. So let's watch this, and I'll get your reaction okay. to it. Hi, this is Vince Palomara, the self-described Secret Service expert that Jerry Blaine accuses me of without naming me, okay? Um, back with my obsession about the Kennedy detail. I gotta read this. This is Rich. Page 287. This is what Blaine's claiming Raleigh said. Raleigh turned to Jerry Blaine. And Jerry, since you were in the lead car, did you ever hear this over your radio as well? Yes, sir, I did. I heard exactly what Floyd just told you. The thing about this is the whole thing about the Ivy League Charlatans thing. Jerry Blaine told me the Ivy League Charlatans thing came from the guys. I can't remember. I can't remember who said it. Boy, his memory got real good five years later, because now he's claiming he heard it over the radio of Floyd Boring, okay? Just unbelievable. It just, it, it just, it's just amazing to me, you know? There never would have been a book if I didn't send a 22-page letter, okay, to Clint Hill that pissed him off so much that his very good friend Jerry Blaine came out with this book as a counter, okay? There's some nice things I recommend everybody to buy. I'm not into censorship. This is my First Amendment rights, okay? It's got some nice pictures, some nice non-assassination things, and there's even some good assassination related things in here. But it's very obvious since other people picked up on it. That's why there's some really bad reviews on Amazon right now. Mine's the best of a bunch of three stars, too. It's very obvious it's a thinly veiled attempt to rewrite history and to blame President Kennedy without trying to blame him for his own assassination. Uh, first of all, his is not the best of the reviews. There are seven with five stars, just in case for the record that I saw today when I looked on Amazon. What's your reaction? Could you hear? Well, he wrote an assessment of the book about uh, the first time about five weeks before it was released 
the second time on Amazon.com, he and four of his friends or four of his aliases uh, put a statement uh, on assessing the book a one, a two, and a three. Uh, my assessment of Mr. Palomera is that uh, he called probably all of the agents, and uh, uh, what agent who answers a phone is going to answer a question, was President Kennedy easy to protect? Well, probably he was too easy to protect because he was assassinated. But uh, uh, the fact that the agents aren't going to tell him anything, and he alludes to the fact that when I wrote the, the book, most of these people were dead. Well, I worked with these people. I knew them like brothers, and uh, uh, I knew exactly what was going on. And I always respected Jim Rowley because he stood up to the issue and said, look, we can't say the president invited himself to be killed, so let's squash this. So that was the, uh, the word throughout the Secret Service. And uh, uh, he, uh, Mr. Palomera, has, uh, there are a number of things that have happened, but... Uh, uh, he has no credibility. He's a self-described uh, expert in his area, which I don't know what it is. He was born after the assassination, and he keeps creating solutions to the assassination until they're proven wrong. So he's... Uh, uh, a lot about... Go ahead. He alleges that uh, because he sent me a letter, 22 pages in length apparently, and that I discussed that with Jerry. I forgot that I ever got a 22-page letter from this particular individual until I heard him say it on TV. And I never discussed it with Jerry or anybody else because it didn't, wasn't important to me. Uh, and insofar as him being an expert, I don't know where the expert part came from. I, I spent a long time in the Secret Service in protection, and I'm not an expert, but apparently he became an expert somewhere up in Pennsylvania I don't know where. One of the things you read in the book about you is your relationship with Mrs. Kennedy. Why don't you describe it and how close you were to her? We were very close but very professional. I always referred to her as Mrs. Kennedy and she always called me Mr. Hill. But we were close in, in, in many ways. Uh, at one time she asked me if I would bring my children over to play with John and Caroline. And I had to convince her that that was a bad idea that I, an employee of the U.S. government, bringing my children to play with the, the son and daughter of the president, and I could just see one of my sons causing a problem and breaking a tooth in one of the, her children, and I'd never get over that. Uh, we were very close. Uh, she was a closet smoker, and when we'd be in the car sometimes going to Middleburg, all of a sudden she would say, uh, Mr. Hill, may I have a cigarette? And so the driver would stop the car, and I'd get in the back of the car, and light a cigarette and give it to her, and we'd drive on and discuss what was going on and at the White House for any problems she had. And it was very, very close, but very professional. How much did you talk to her after this assassination? The years beyond that, did you see much of her then? I was uh, asked to stay for one year after the assassination and remain with her and the children until after the election in 1964. She and I never discussed the assassination. It was never brought up. But we discussed a lot of other things. But, uh, like, she had to move out of the White House. Uh, Ambassador Harriman loaned a house to her in Georgetown. Lived there. She lived there for a while with the children. She bought a house across the street. That became a problem because of tour buses. She had to move. She decided she'd move to New York. Uh, I was with her all of that period so that uh, we had a very close relationship. When you go back to that day, November 22nd, where were you when the president was shot? I was uh, in Austin. I had uh, probably been in bed about five minutes when uh, there was a bang on the door, and it was a shift leader, Art Godfrey, telling me that uh, the president had been hit. So we packed up our uh, bags uh, went uh, out to the uh, Air Force Base uh, outside of Austin and uh, rode a, a strategic air command tanker back with uh, 
uh, John Bailey, who was a, a, the uh, head of the Democratic National Committee, and we had five agents on our shift and three or four other agents who had conducted uh, the advance in uh, Austin. We didn't say a word on the way home either, and we didn't find out until we arrived at Andrews that the president was dead. How did you go about doing the book? Uh, and it is also it has been a documentary on discovery for two hours. But how did you go about getting it sold and getting all the information? I know that there was a you have a, a woman that did the I assume a lot of the yes. writing, Lisa McCubin. Yes, she is a, an excellent writer. Uh, I had sent out some questionnaires to the agents, and uh, then I typed out a few questions to the agents. And I found out, you know, this is a cold way to do it. So if I had a question, I would call on a telephone. I'd call Clint. We'd start talking, and pretty soon, you know, we'd talk 45 minutes about, you know, other things and so forth. And uh, we all of a sudden found out we all felt the same. And uh, this had been a shadow hanging over there. Not many jobs where you can be a 100% failure. And we considered we were a hundred percent failure on that, and uh, with that, the agents just started opening up, and that resulted in a reunion. The agents down in uh, in Dallas, where uh, we discussed on the Discovery Channel how it impacted us and uh, how we felt, and uh, it was a good healing uh, session. One of the things that critics say about the book is that it's an attempt by you all to blame President Kennedy for what happened down there because of the idea that you couldn't ride on the on the uh, side of the actual limousine that was shot. What's your reaction to that? Well, nothing could be farther from the truth than that. Certainly we don't blame President Kennedy. I went back to Dallas in 1990 for the first time. And I walked Dealey Plaza. I went up in the sixth floor looked out the window, went back again this past June, did the same thing for about a week. There's only one conclusion that I could make, and that was that what happened there was due to many, many things. The weather paid it, it paid part of the problem. The street configuration was part of the problem. The location of the building was part of the problem. And the shooter, who had secreted himself in the sixth floor, had an ideal situation developed. So I came to the conclusion there was nothing that I did personally that I could have done any differently. And so I, at that, from that point on, I quit blaming myself for the president's death. Now, he certainly didn't contribute to that death in any way. It wasn't his fault in any way. We failed in our responsibility to protect him. That was our job. How did you fail, though? I mean, by, is there any way you could have prevented that from happening? By, perhaps by, uh, right. you know, the one thing about it is, if you, went, if you took a shot of, or photograph of Main Street that day in Dallas, you looked at all the buildings on Main Street, you find that almost every building had windows open, people on balconies, people, up, people on rooftops. And so when you looked at the school book depository and you saw some windows open, there was nothing unusual about that. Mm. Now, what could we have done? The only thing that possibly could have been done was make sure every window in every building had been closed, but it was impossible to do that under the conditions that existed. What's Not your enough uh, resources. I, when you look at the feat that Clint performed, he saw the president after the first shot grab for his throat. Uh, he let, jumped right away. He had to catch up with 80 feet. There was uh, The cars traveled 80 feet from the time he left to the time he reached the car. The car was going 11 miles an hour, which means Clint had to be running about 15 miles an hour. And Darner missed the back of the car, and he could have uh, been laid out flat. But the president was shot in the head before Clint got there, and Clint gave it a superhuman effort. So, We have another one of these videos from YouTube, and this is from somebody, there's no name on it, the truth will out. And I run it again so that you all can deal with what the accusations are. Let's let's run this, and it's about a minute and 29. You can watch it on these monitors here and okay. comment okay. on it. Watch the left side of your screen. 
The arrow points to agent in charge, Emery Roberts, as he stands in the Secret Service follow-up car and motions with his hand. What he is doing is calling away the president's two most important bodyguards, the bodyguards whose job was to protect the president's back by riding on the bumper of the limousine throughout the motorcade. Watch again as he stands and orders the agents running at the rear of the president's car away. Watch the confusion inside the follow-up car that results. Watch the right side of your screen. The arrow points to one of two agents whose job was to hop aboard the bumper and act as human shields. He's obviously perplexed. Watch as he shrugs his shoulders three times in dismay, each shrug more dramatic than the last. As you watch this scene for the final time, ask yourself, is this the kind of conduct you would expect from an agency that routinely sends an advance team to a city a month or more prior to the president's arrival in order to make preparations? Mr. Hill. Yes. <laughs> I'd be glad to comment on that. I was the agent on the left rear outside running alongside the car. The agent on the right rear working the car, the right rear at that time is an agent named Don Lawton. Don Lawton's assignment that day was not to ride in the follow-up car. His assignment to, was to remain at Love Field and handle our return, secure the airport for us when we came back. We were going to fly on to Austin, Texas. And what he was doing was, when he came back off the car, he was saying, okay, you guys, I'm going to lunch. Have a good trip. I talked to him within the last month. And he reiterated to me the same thing again. That's exactly what he was doing just making a gesture to us in the follow-up car. See ya. I'm going to lunch. Have a good trip. <laughs> Where do you two stand on the Warren Commission? Uh, I've read the Warren Commission and all 23 books with it. I feel the Warren Commission came up with uh, the solution. Uh, it's been 47 years now. Any good investigator will tell you if a conspiracy is committed, it's lucky to last 60 days. This has been going on for 47 years, and there is not one shred of evidence that it was a conspiracy. If you go through the book and you follow Oswald's actions of taking a shot at General Walker, uh, he was uh, had the type of personality, he couldn't talk to anybody five minutes without totally alienating them. He had failed at everything he did. He couldn't even be a good defector. And uh, I believe that he just felt that, by golly, somebody's going to realize that Lee Harvey Oswald lives. You know, in the book, there's a lot about what, what happened to you, that you went through depression yes. and you started drinking and all that. Would you tell that story? And what, when was that? And you know, here you are. What are you? You both seventy-eight. Seventy-eight. Yes, sir. What happened? Well, as I progressed in the service, I got desk desk jobs, and I was not as active as I had been. And I, I began to think about the assassination. What happened? What could I have done? And it just started to eat at me. By 1975, when I was retired, it really had gotten to me. Then I was interviewed by 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace. And after that interview, it just seemed to deteriorate, and I hid myself in my basement with a bottle and a carton of cigarettes for years. And it wasn't until 1982 that uh, a friend of mine who was a doctor told me, is either quit what you're doing or die. And so I quit drinking, I quit smoking, thank God, and I just got progressively better ever since that time. What impact did it have on your married life and your family? Well, my kids had suffered a great deal because of the fact I was gone almost 80% of the time during the time I was in the Secret Service. So they grew up almost without a father. But they are very, we are very close today. Uh, but uh, my wife was very supportive throughout that time and kept on just hanging in there with me. 
But you know, after that assassination, you went on to be head of the detail for LBJ, President I, Johnson. I was at first. I was transferred from Mrs. Kennedy back to Johnson in November of 1964. At first, President Johnson did not accept me. He saw me, and he recognized me as coming from the Kennedy detail. And he asked that I not be there, that I be removed. Uh, Rufus Youngblood, who he trusted, went in and talked to him and told him that I was there for as a professional, that I had nothing to do with politics, and he agreed to accept me. A few years later, I had advanced and I became the special agent in charge of presidential protection under President Johnson. And we became pretty good friends. What was the difference between Lyndon Johnson and Jack Kennedy? Night and day. Uh, <laughs> They both were gregarious, of course, but uh, their personalities were very, very different. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was very, very unpredictable. We never knew for sure what he was going to do, and that's what he preferred to have it that way, that if he could do something as a complete surprise, he, that was his preference. Uh, whereas with President Kennedy, we knew he, he would keep us informed. We knew exactly what was going to happen. Uh, President Kennedy knew every agent by name. President Johnson knew many of us, but not as many as President Kennedy, probably. But they both they both had their own individual personalities. All presidents do. You just have to accept them for accept what they do and how they act. One of the criticisms of the book come from these folks that don't believe any of this or are conspiracy theorists is that um, you are covering up the fact in here that. Uh, Jack Kennedy had extramarital affairs, and you mentioned in here Mar the Mar situation with Marilyn Monroe, and basically put it aside, saying it didn't amount to anything. Uh, what's your answer to the criticism? Well, th there's criticism. What I tried to state is that uh, we protect the president when he's out in the public. When he goes up into his residence and so forth, uh, there may be visitors. What happens up there, none of the agents know. All I know is that there were two times that uh, I saw Marilyn Monroe and we left before uh, Marilyn did. And uh, the first time was out in Santa Monica, California, at the home of Peter Lawford. And his wife, Pat, the president's sister, was there. The president went in, changed into his swim trucks, went out into the ocean for a bit, shook hands with the people, came back in, got in his clothes and left. The second time was when she sang happy birthday to the president in Madison Square Garden. And afterwards, they had a reception at Arthur Crimm's residence, and uh, uh, there were a number of stars, a number of people from uh, the administration that were there. The president left and uh, went back to the Carlisle. So uh, on things like extramarital affairs, what is your attitude about uh, when you see something like that? What, what's, the, what's the rule at the I, Secret Service? I don't know. I always use this statement, President Kennedy never asked me about my sexual life, and I never asked him about his. Yeah, I have no knowledge of any marital affair with a, between a president and anybody else, and I worked for five different presidents. So, Who are the five? Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. And how many presidents did you work Eisenhower, for? Kennedy, and Johnson, three. You have some figures in the book that in 1963, the budget for the Secret Service was $4.1 million no, with 300 agents. And today, the budget is $1.6 billion and 4,000 agents. Wow. What's changed? Only the numbers. That's all that's changed. There are that many agents today. We, when I came in the service, there were 269. The only way you got a job was either somebody died or retired. Then they hired somebody. In 1963, there were less than 300, I believe. Mm -hmm. But the only thing that's different are the numbers. The job is the same. The attitude is the same. The agents are better trained, probably, because they go through a different training system. Everything is improved. They have technology today that we only dreamed of having back in 1963. But other than that, the Secret Service is the same today as it was in 1963. Yeah. On the, on the uh, other side of that, too, the weaponry today is so sophisticated when you can shoot headshots at over a mile away with a sniper rifle, 
uh, with nuclear capability, biological, chemical, all of the threats we had, but much more sophisticated. Other countries are working on drones, uh, much like uh, the ones that we use now over in Afghanistan, only miniaturized. So any agent who has ever been on protection has to realize that there's no 100% guarantee. There's always the gap. You give your all and you may prevent it or you may have an assassination and that that's not changed. So over the years, what have you both read or watched? How much you mentioned you saw the Oliver Stone film. What did you did you read the books on this assassination? I tried to stay away from most of it. I've read the Warren Commission report. I read Bill Manchester's book. I've read uh, Bugliosi's book. Uh, but most of the other stuff, I just it's just junk, so I don't read it. And are those books that you mentioned, the Manchester book and the Bugliosi book, are they accurate in your opinion? Somewhat. Mostly accurate. What's been your experience? Well, I felt Bugliosi went about disproving a lot of the theories that were out there. Uh, I guess what concerns me in some ways... We had a uh, an agent uh, who was manning the AR-15 and another one of these uh, experts who was supposedly an expert on trajectory and uh, firearms and so forth stated that uh, this agent stood up and uh, when the car moved out, he fell backwards and accidentally shot the uh, the president. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Gary Mack, who's a curator at the Sixth Floor Museum, happened to dig out a film and found out that uh, the the agent, an agent by the name of Hickey, uh, had not even stood up, was just in the process of starting to lift up when the third shot was fired. So therefore, if he'd have fired the shot at that time, it would have gone right between Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers and would have had to have gone through the front windshield of the follow-up car. That book is still for sale on the market. What, what happens when you are out in public? Can you go through uh, meeting people without them knowing who you are, what your background is, the fact that you were there on that day? and? And uh, were the, you were the fellow that was up on the back of the, of the automobile when Mrs. Kennedy tried to climb out? For the most part, I can, but uh, depending upon where I am. And if it, the word has gotten out that I'm there, then it, word spreads pretty fast and people confront you. And for the most part, are very, very kind and generous in their comments. What's been your attitude about talking about it? Well, I'm glad. You know, I'm willing to talk to the people about it. Just, I have no reservations about that. I just don't like to contribute to any book material or anything like that except for the book I helped Jerry with. There's a photograph on the screen right now of you on the back of that Lincoln Continental and uh, in in that day. That, what are you doing right there? I can't see myself. I believe that you're, you know, we have, we could have the Zabruder film we also have, but you know, when Mrs. Kennedy climbed on the back okay. of the trunk, what were you doing? Well, after this, when the third shot hit, this is right about now, I was just about to get onto the car, and I slipped. Then I regained my step. Then I got up in the car, and Mrs. Kennedy at that time was coming out on the trunk. She was coming out on the trunk to try to retrieve something that came off the president's head, went off to the right rear. She did not know I was there. When I got up in the trunk, I pushed her as best I could back into the rear seat. When I did that, the president fell down into her lap with the right side of his head up, exposed. I could see that his eyes were fixed, and there was a large hole above the right ear, just to the rear and above the right ear, about the size of my palm. Skull was That part of the skull was missing, and there was brain matter. It looked like somebody had taken an ice cream scoop and gone in there, just removed a whole portion of the brain and thrown it around the back of the car. The back of the car and she were covered in blood and brain. And uh, we, I turned and gave a thumbs down to the follow-up car to let them know that for all intents and purposes, what had happened. And uh, the driver accelerated. We went past the lead car. We screamed at them to get us to a hospital. We didn't know where the hospital was. They got in front of us and took us to Parkland. And that, when we got to Parkland, then we had a problem of getting people out of the car. I didn't realize at first that Conley had been shot. 
he lifted up at one point while we were still moving. I noticed the front of his shirt was all covered in blood. So I knew he'd been shot. When we got to Parkland, they'd been notified, but there were no gurneys there. One of the agents ran in, and a guy was in the process of coming out. He got the gurneys out there. Then we had the problem of moving Governor Connolly out of the car first because he was sitting in a jump seat immediately in front of the president. Couldn't move the president or first lady without getting the people out of the jump seats. So we got Governor Connolly onto a gurney. Mrs. Connolly followed through the, the jump seats forward. Then we had the problem of getting the president out. Well, Mrs. Kennedy didn't want to let go of the body. And I recognized that she was probably trying to shield him from the people seeing what, he, what his appearance was, which was pretty gross. So I took my jacket off and threw it over the, his head and the top of his torso. When I did that, she released him. And we picked him up, put him on a gurney, and raced into the hospital, the agents following. How old were you on that day? 31. How old was she? 34. You were about to say something earlier. Uh, the Zapruder film, uh, when the Zapruder film is run at normal speed, another theme uh, that Paula Mara throws out is that Bill Greer stopped the car. Uh, when it's run at uh, its normal speed, you'll notice the car absolutely does not start, stop at all. Uh, this happened in less than six seconds after the president was hit in the throat and moving along. Then all of a sudden, everybody broke down the Zapruder film to frame by frame, to slowed it down, and uh, they created a, uh, a myth to almost every frame of what was going on. And you'll notice, too, that when Mrs. Kennedy comes over after the first shot, she is directly in front of the president's face. And people have accused Bill Greer of pulling a gun out and shooting the president. He'd have had to shoot through the Connellys, and he'd have had to shoot Mrs. Kennedy. And uh, the same thing holds for anybody on the grassy knoll. Had they fired, they'd have probably uh, injured Mrs. Kennedy in it, too. These are the myths that come about. People create a, uh, a myth or a theory, but they forget all the other facts that are going on. After the president was shot and you got to the hospital, what was what were you what did you do with Mrs. Kennedy? What was your responsibility then? The governor was, was in one emergency room and the president was one right across the hall. And at first Mrs. Kennedy went in to, to be in the emergency room with him. But there got to be so many doctors in there that there was hardly room for anybody. And she came out and was in a, a place between the two emergency rooms. Uh, Agent Landis, who was working with me with Mrs. Kennedy, helped get her get her a chair. A, uh, my supervisor, Roy Kellerman, asked me to contact the White House. So I grabbed the phone, got the telephone number from Wynn Lawson, the advance man, and called the Dallas White House. Wherever we traveled, White House Communications had set up a switchboard. So I got the Dallas White House and asked them to put me through to Jerry Bain's office at the White House in Washington and to keep the line open, which they did. And I began to tell Jerry Bain what had happened when Kellerman came back out, grabbed the phone, and explained it to Bain what had happened. And about that time, one of the doctors came out and said, uh, he's breathing. And Mrs. Kennedy rushed back in, and then Kellerman gave me the phone, and he rushed back in. And about that time, uh, I, I was then trying to explain to Jerry Bain what had happened. And the operator cut in and said, uh, Attorney General Kennedy's on the phone and wants to talk to Agent Hill. So I said, this is Agent Hill. And he said, Clint, he said, uh, what happened? So I told him that both the governor and the president had been shot. And he said, well, how bad is it? I didn't want to tell him that his brother was dead. So I just simply said, it's as bad as it can get. And he hung up. Uh, about that time, Kellerman came back. What had happened with the president's breathing was involuntary resuscitation of what was going on. He was dead, but his body kept moving, I guess, with air or something. Uh, then we continued to talk to the White House to explain what had happened, make sure that they were completely informed. I told him, told Mr. Bain to please call, contact members of the family 
to make sure that we told him before the press did, uh, which he said he would do. Uh, then after at one, when they determined that the president had died, uh, they decided to tell the press. Then we had the problems that Vice President Johnson had been taken to a separate part of the hospital and secured by the agents who had been working the follow-up car and his, the agents that had been signed to him. But when it happened, we got to Parkland, just so you know, one of the senior agents who was assigned to the follow-up car realized the situation was so dire that he took the agents and went to help secure the vice president. He knew that there was nothing he could do for the president, which was the correct thing to do. He, did, he made the right decision. It was instantaneous. We uh, <clears throat> were waiting for the decision to be made. What would happen. <clears throat> the vice president wanted to go to the airport. We wanted him to go immediately to Washington. We thought it would be best if he got out of the area. He didn't want to leave Dallas without Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy wouldn't leave without the body. And so consequently, when Vice President Johnson got to the aircraft, he just waited to find out what was going to happen. Now we had the problem at the hospital of removing the body because Texas state law required there be an autopsy on any individual killed in that jurisdiction, and the autopsy had to be conducted in that jurisdiction. So we were not going to be allowed to remove the body from Dallas. So we tried to convince them that this was the president of the United States. He represented all the people. We should take him back to the nation's capital. But this was state law. And they were right. It was state law. So we tried to call a federal judge and a state judge. One of them came to the hospital. And after a lot of give and take, a lot of arguing back and forth between Kenny O'Donnell and, and uh, Dave Powers and officials in Texas and Roy Kellerman, my boss, it was decided that <clears throat> if we took the body out of the hospital and took it back to Washington, it had to be accompanied by somebody who was a medical profession at all the time, at all times. And I said, well, we have the right person for that job. And it was <clears throat> Admiral George Berkeley, who was the president physician. So from that point on, he remained with the body. The body never left his sight. <clears throat> and it never left my sight until we got to the autopsy room in, in Bethesda. Gerald Blaine, when you look back on, on this project of this book, um, what was the hardest part of putting this all together? And how long did it take you? The, uh, after all of my research, it did not take long to write the book once we got the outline there. But the most difficult thing, is I was concerned about the agents I talked to. There are two agents yet that uh, just cannot confront that day. And I knew it was painful whenever I brought the subject up and... Uh, uh, because I knew how I felt, and uh, that that was the toughest thing. But the more we talked, the more people opened up and talked to other agents, and uh, then that recalling uh, situation, uh, it's been a healing process for me. I've, and a healing process for me, too. Yeah. Very much so. Explain why. Just... Because we were like brothers, and it's like sitting around together and talking about it and trying to resolve the issues, because we never said, how did you feel, or what impact did you have? We didn't have any uh, counseling or uh, trauma counseling. Right after the assassination, we had to go to work, and we ended up uh, working uh more hours than we'd worked before. We were never going to let that mistake happen again. And so we were all left to try to solve this. I think a lot of us thought maybe we resolved it at one time in our life, but at the end, we hadn't really resolved it. In your case, you know, how did this heal? Well, it, it allowed me to, to express the feelings I had to, to Jerry and to the writer, Lisa McCubbin, she interviewed me for a couple hours in, in Washington and then by email and it just to get the information out to just to release. It just was like a load off my back. It just just felt so much better. 
Now, there's a rather large book tour underway. Are you both going to the, all the locations? Yes. Yes. And why are you doing that? Because, again, we want to get the story out. Uh, right now, history is made out by a cottage industry called conspiracy. And uh, the USA Today, about three weeks ago, came out with an article stating that the youth between the ages of 18 and 29, 82% believed in a conspiracy. Uh, on this particular case? Or just on, a, con just on a JFK's assassination. And uh, if that goes down in history, if all these theories go down as the only solution, uh, the only aspect of history, we decided we better make our history understand from our perspective what happened and hope that uh, youth buys that because if not, they'll never trust history again. So Why are you doing it, Mr. Hill? To help the same way. reason to get the word out that this book is fact, not fiction, that most of the other information that's being peddled out there is strictly theory. They have no first-hand knowledge of anything that happened, and they've decided to make a lot of money by trying to write a book. When the two of you think of that day, what's the first thing that comes to mind right away? The first thing that comes to my mind is what I saw in the backseat of the car. Yeah, Mr. Biden. Just, I had sympathy for whoever was there because I knew they'd have given their all. And uh, you just felt sorry for the agents. It, uh, we operated as a team, and uh, the fact that he was dead, we failed. And uh, I think that uh, that's the way everybody felt. Well, but let me ask this. If you had it to do all over again, what would you have done differently? Well, if you took everything into consideration, uh, we probably wouldn't do much differently, but... Uh... You know, riding in an open car, and even with a bubble top that we had, that wasn't armored. That was strictly plexiglass, so that wouldn't have helped much either. What I would do differently, I don't know. I, I probably couldn't do anything differently. In the book, I, I call it a confidence factor. With President Eisenhower, he did not have a narcissistic bone in his body. Uh, he rode in a closed-top car. He, uh, he didn't really have an urge to go out and shake hands with people. Of course, this was his last term in office. So we had probably a 95% confidence factor. With President Kennedy, you know, there's the issue about the bubble-top car, whether it was on or off. If you go through and look at all the pictures in his administration, <laughs> The bubble top off was standard. Only if Mrs. Kennedy were riding or it was raining would the bubble top go on. And uh, with President Kennedy, I've got to say we had a confidence factor of about 70%. We only have about a minute. What's different today than those days in that uh, back when you were an agent? What's the main difference? Main, the main difference, probably the number of people involved is, is very beneficial to the service. They have good cooperation from all uh, law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies in the government and from international organizations. When they go abroad, which they are now, they're right now in India, they're getting cooperation from the Indian government, from whatever government they're visiting. Uh, we did cooperation, but get, did get cooperation, but it's not to the extent they get it today. Uh, they have much more sophisticated equipment. They use armored cars. We never had an armored car. They have instant communications between agents. We didn't have that. So from that point of view, it's better today than it was then. I think they have more threats today, and it, the type of threat is probably much more dangerous than the threats we face. We're out of time, and the name of this book is called The Kennedy Detail. Gerald Blaine, you led this with Lisa McCubin, a writer, and Clint Hill participates in the book, and we thank you both very much for thank joining you. us. Thank you. Thank you. For a DVD copy of this program, call 1-877-662-7726. 
For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at qna.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN podcasts.